Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Naima Novetsky. In this class, we'll continue our study of Vayikra chapter 19, moving to the section of laws listed in verses 19 through 31. As we pointed out previously, it's not always easy to see how each of the laws of our chapter relates to that which follows. And in this section of the chapter 2, the reason for the juxtaposition of one law to the next is often difficult to ascertain. The one common denominator of the unit, though, is that all its mitzvot are designated as chukim. As we've discussed in earlier classes, Rashi defines a chuk as a law whose purpose is not self-evident and which would not necessarily be mandated by society had God not obligated it. Rav David Hoffman instead defines a chuk as a law which governs one's relationship with God, nature, or oneself, as opposed to one's relationship with another human. Many of the laws we are about to delve into can certainly sustain both of these definitions. In fact, the first law of the unit is often brought as the classic example of a chok, the laws of kilayim and shatnes, laws of hybrids which prohibit the mixing of certain species and fabrics. Verse 19 reads, Observe my statutes. Do not crossbreed your livestock with other species. Do not plant your field with diverse species. And do not don a garment that contains a forbidden mixture of fabrics. Our verse contains three distinct prohibitions. One, crossbreeding animals. Two, planting diverse seeds in the field. And three, wearing a garment of mixed material. In Zvarim chapter 22, when these laws are repeated, it specifies which materials cannot be mixed, teaching that one may not wear a garment which contains both wool and linen. The common denominator behind the three laws is clear. All refer to forbidden mixtures. Yet, while the first two appear to speak of the potential production of a crossbreed, the third, Shatnes, does not. Shatnes is also singular in that there are two exceptions to the rule. Both tzitzit and the priestly garments contain a mixture of wool and linen. Despite our mitzvah being labeled echok, many nonetheless attempt to understand the reason for the prohibition. Let's survey some of the possibilities. The Rambam asserts that both the mitzvot of kilayim of the field and the laws of shatnes stem from a desire to distance Am Yisrael from idolatrous practices. He asserts that there were certain idolatrous rites that entailed the grafting of plants one to another. These rituals were further accompanied by sexual acts. In reaction, the Torah prohibits grafting and even planting seeds of different species together. As far as wearing wool and linen, Rambam maintains that such garments were popular among the idolatrous priests, and they figured prominently in their rituals, and so they too are banned from Israel. Rambam here is consistent with his understanding that many laws were instituted as a means of rooting out idolatrous practices. However, without concrete evidence from the ancient Near East regarding the types of idolatrous rites which were prevalent in Tanakh's time, it is often hard to evaluate Rambam's assumptions. In our case, though, there would seem to be a logical flaw in his argument. If garments containing a mixture of wool and linen were prevalent among idolatrous priests, why, out of all people, is it the priests who are exempted from the prohibition of shatnis? If the law's purpose is to distance us from copying these foreign practices, 
It makes no sense that the Torah would mandate that a priest specifically should wear the very same type of garment from which we are trying to separate. As such, others offer a different explanation for the law. They suggest that these actions are prohibited because they in some manner attempt to change the natural order of the world as created by God. When Hashem created the world, He made each tree and animal according to its species, and He mandated that each species should reproduce according to its own kind. Crossbreeding, then, goes against Hashem's plan of creation. Moreover, as Rav Yosef Bechorshor notes, it points to man's hubris, that you make yourself as a creator, usurping the role of God. Ramban elaborates, Crossbreeding expresses that man feels as if Hashem had not completed and perfected the world as was necessary. And this person feels as if he is needed to help in the world's creation, that he is needed to add new creatures and species. This understanding, though, should make us question. In Parashat Brishi, Hashem commands, Fill the world and conquer it, suggesting that we are supposed to go out and control the world, to improve on Hashem's creation. We are given the ability to make technological advances, and the Torah even celebrates some of these. So we have to ask, when is becoming Hashem's partner in creation something to be lauded? And when is it a sign of hubris? Why specifically in this case should playing with nature be considered trying to one-up Hashem and usurping his role? Rabbi Yosef Bechoshor adds one point which might be related. He notes that all crossbeeds of plants or animals are barren. They can't produce more of themselves. This, he says, is obviously against nature and hard to be viewed as an improvement in the world. One might question, how does shatnes wearing wool and linen fit in? Is it prohibited for the same reason or does it have its own unique standing? Rashbam suggests that really it's simply a variation of the prohibition. He points out that wool is a product of the animal kingdom while linen emerges from plants and so the prohibited mixture highlights the same idea that we have been talking about, that mixing of species is not desired and goes against Hashem's creation. He does not explain, though, according to his reasoning, why an exception should be made for the priestly clothing and for tzitzit. In contrast to Rashbam, Rav Yosef Bechoshor suggests that shatnis is not prohibited for the same reason as his kalayim of plants and animals. It's found in the same verse only due to the fact that both are prohibited mixtures. According to him, shatnis is prohibited in everyday wear specifically because it is a garment set aside for priests. This is similar to the injunction against eating fat and blood, which are prohibited because they are Hashem's portion on the altar, or the prohibition for a layman to make the incense mixture for his own personal use, since this is designated for use in the Mikdash. The common denominator in all these cases is It is as if one is making use of the scepter of the king, and it is thus prohibited. This understanding would explain the exception of tzitzit as well. For according to many commentaries, wearing tzitzit is meant to be a statement that all of Israel must strive to serve God as a kingdom of priests. So to summarize what we've seen so far. The mitzvot of kilayim and shatnes, mixing of species, 
have been understood as a reaction against idolatry, or inversely, a recognition of God as creator. In addition, Shatnes itself might instead be instituted to ensure the Kedusha and unique status of the priest and his garments. The next few verses of the chapter deal with a sexual violation, but one which is considered less severe than those discussed in chapter 18 and whose violation does not result in death. Presumably, this is the reason that it is listed separately. We'll speak about it only briefly. Verse 20. If a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave girl, a slave girl pledged to be married to another man, and she is not ransomed, nor is she given her freedom. They shall be punished. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to Hashem to the door of the tents of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest will make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Hashem for the sin which he has committed, and his sin shall be forgiven him. Our verses speak of a shifchak na'anit, a Canaanite maidservant who is designated to marry a person, but has not yet been given her freedom from slavery, and therefore her engagement is not complete. As such, she has an in-between status. She is not considered an Ashid Ish, a married woman, but she's not totally available either. Therefore, relations with her are not considered adultery and the offense is not punishable by death, but it is nonetheless prohibited. The woman is given lashes and the man must bring an Asham offering. Verses 23 through 25 move back to the agricultural realm as they speak about two interrelated laws known as the mitzvot of Orla and Neta Revai. Pasuk Chav Gimel V'chi al ha'aretz u'netatem kol itz ma'achal v'araltem orlato et peryo shalosh shanim yelachem arilim lo yeyachel When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as Orla, literally uncircumcised. Three years shall they be Orla, it shall not be eaten. Pasuk Chav Dalid but in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy for giving praise to Hashem. And the fifth year you shall eat its fruit, that it may yield its increase to you. I am Hashem, your God. These verses contain one prohibition and one positive command. The prohibition of Allah not to benefit from the fruit of the tree during its first three years, and the obligation of Neta Revai, the obligation to bring the fruit from the fourth year to Yerushalayim and to eat it there in a state of purity. Only in the tree's fifth year might one eat from the tree without any special process. This commandment is somewhat unique. We would have expected that the first fruit of the tree would be sanctified to God, like the mitzvah of Bikurim, the first fruit which are all given to Hashem. Here, in contrast, these fruits are off-limits totally. They are not brought to God until the fourth year, and we wonder why. What is the purpose of the initial prohibition? A second question relates to the language used by the Torah. The fruit is referred to as orla, 
a word which is mentioned three times in the one verse which states our prohibition. The word is often translated as uncircumcised, and in its noun form, it is used to refer to a foreskin. As such, it has a generally negative connotation, and we wonder at its usage in our verse. What is the Torah trying to say through the image? According to Rashi, the root ayin weish lamid means to seal or cover, the general function of a foreskin. And the verse is stating that for the first three years, the fruit of the tree should be sealed off, barred from benefit. Ibn Ezra and Rabag suggest that the word Allah has the extra connotation of something which is superfluous and has no utility, or something that is even harmful. If so, it's possible that the verse uses this root specifically, rather than a synonym, to suggest that the fruit of the first three years is somehow harmful and should be viewed negatively. Again, though, we wonder why. We'll compare three very different answers to these questions and see how our commentators are somewhat consistent in the way that they view multiple mitzvot. Let's start with Rambam, who not surprisingly, once again suggests that our prohibition is an attempt to distance Israel from idolatrous rites. In his philosophical work, Moren Nevuchim, he writes that idolaters would do certain magical practices in an effort to hasten the ripening of the fruit of the tree and its bearing of fruit. When the fruit emerged, they would collect it and sacrifice it to their gods. In reaction, Hashem prohibits, prohibits benefiting from a tree for its first three years, ensuring that there is no reason to try and accelerate its bearing of fruit. And when the fruit is finally permitted, it is brought to Hashem, not to foreign gods. According to this understanding, it's possible that Hashem's promise in verse 23 that if one keeps the mitzvah, Hashem will increase the yields of the tree, is also a reaction to the idolatrous idea. The pagans tried to accelerate the bearing of fruit in the tree's initial years. Hashem says, if you don't touch the tree during those years, don't worry. I will ensure that the tree bears more fruit afterwards. You will not lose out. Rabbanit Rimon, in an article on this topic, works off the Rambam and suggests that maybe even if the practice was not idolatrous, the Torah wants to ensure that we do not attempt to accelerate the production of fruit, but to instead let the, fruit, let the tree grow at its own pace in its own natural way. This would be similar to the explanations we offered earlier regarding the prohibition of kilayim, that certain aspects of nature should be left as is. Man need not and should not attempt to improve to improve on Hashem's creation. Varaltem or lato then means make sure the fruit stays uncircumcised, unfinished. Don't enhance it. Moving to another approach. Ramban, among other explanations that he offers for the mitzvah, suggests that the fruit is prohibited due to health reasons. The emet hadavarod ki hapri betchilat netiat ha'ilanot ma'od mezik laguf ve'inenu tov lo'ochla According to Ramban, the fruit of a tree in its first three years is filled with moisture, making it unhealthy for the body. Hashem thus prohibits, prohibits its consumption to ensure our physical fitness. He compares these fruits to other forbidden foods, such as fish without scales, which are similarly prohibited since they are detrimental to the body. This reading would explain why the food is called orla. After all, it is something imperfect and unfinished that has no utility and is even harmful. 
The approach, though, raises an interesting question. Is it possible that laws of the Torah are simply utilitarian in nature? In the context of the laws of Kashrut, the Akedat Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Arama, argues that the Torah is not a medical book whose purpose is to teach medicine, but an ethical guide meant to elevate man. How could it be that the Torah mandates something only because it is physically healthy? One could, of course, make the same argument here. Is it possible that these laws were instituted really just in order to ensure our health? It's not so clear, though, which assumption is correct. Is every law in the Torah truly meant to inspire and elevate? Or is it possible that certain laws are more pragmatic in nature, meant to protect Hashem's chosen people? In fact, quite a few commentators give practical reasons for many laws. Rabag views Tarat as a medical infliction and many aspects of the process of purification as its treatment. Rambam says that the purpose of the incense altar is to act as a deodorizer to cleanse the Mishkan from the smell of the korbanot. Thus, the question is an important one. Does suggesting such mundane explanations belittle the Torah? Or is it totally acceptable to assume that Hashem guides us in multiple ways, both spiritually and also physically? One last approach to the mitzvah of Verlach, brought by both Rav Yosef Bahoshor and Ramban, suggests not that the fruit is unhealthy, but that it is of poor quality. Since we are always supposed to bring the first of all of our produce to Hashem, we can't eat of this tree either until we give of it to God. Yet, in the early years of the tree, the fruit is sparse, not tasty, and not fragrant, and thus not worthy of being offered to God. As such, we wait until the tree and fruit have developed and then bring the fruit to the Mikdash. Our mitzvah is much like that of Bikurim, the first fruits which go to Hashem as an acknowledgement of His role as Creator. It is our way of saying both thank you and also recognizing that all belongs to Him, not us. According to this reading, the primary mitzvah of our verses is Netzeravai, the fourth year's fruit which goes to God while the prohibition of Verlah is simply a means to that end. According to this reading too, the fruit might be called Verlah, uncircumcised, because they are incomplete and unfinished. So to summarize, we have seen three different approaches to our verses. Those who assume that the mitzvah is simply a reaction to idolatrous practices. Those who think it is utilitarian in nature, meant to promote health. And those who view it as an expression of recognition of God as preparation to give the fruit as a gift to Hashem. The different approaches reflect very different ways of viewing Hashem's Torah, making us question, need mitzvot be inherently positive in their own right and a means to actively bring us close to God? Or might they be reactionary in nature, meant to distance us, distance us from idolatry? Might mitzvot be instituted for purely pragmatic reasons? Or do all mitzvot need to be somewhat spiritual in nature? Moving to the second half of this unit. The next few verses of the chapter contain another string of prohibitions whose common denominator, according to many commentators, is that they are all prohibited since they are hukota goyim, examples of the problematic and idolatrous practices of surrounding cultures. Verse 26. You shall not eat on the blood, neither shall you use enchantments nor practice sorcery. The nature of the first prohibition of this verse, Lotochulu al-Hadam, is debated. But from context, 
the Rambam and others suggest that foreign people used to eat blood as part of their practice of divination and sorcery. As such, the Torah prohibits us from eating blood and mandates that we cannot eat of a sacrifice until the blood has been sprinkled on the altar. The Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, however, learns that multiple other laws from the verse, ignoring the context of divination and focusing solely on the four words, Lo tochalu al-hadam. Thus, they learned that one may not eat from an animal until its breath has departed. Even if the animal has been slaughtered according to halacha, if it is still moving, one may not eat of it. According to this reading, the blood mentioned in the verse is metaphoric, standing in for the animal's life force. A second law learned is that if the Sanhedrin sentences someone to death, they may not eat on the day of the execution. Similarly, the relatives of someone who has been killed for a capital crime do not eat a su'udat havra'ah, the meal eaten after the burial. In Masachat Brachot, one other law is learned, that one may not eat before praying. You must first pray for your life, and only then may you eat. One motif runs through the first few laws that we mentioned, the value that Torah places on life. If there is the slightest sign of life in an animal, you may not yet partake of it. Even if a person deserves death, the taking of his life is no light matter, and those judges must sit in fasting on the day he is killed. Torah reminds us again and again of the sanctity of all life. Moving to verse 27. Lo takifu pa'at roshachem, lo tashrit et pa'at zekanecha. You shall not cut the hair on the side of your heads, neither shall you clip off the edge of your beard. This verse prohibits cutting certain sections of one's hair. Rav Yosef Bachor suggests that such haircuts were common among idolatrous priests, while Ibn Ezra implies that it was simply the style of surrounding nations, not necessarily connected to idolatry itself. Nonetheless, we want to distinguish ourselves from these cultures in not just deed, but also in outer appearances. Verse 28 continues, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am Hashem. Part of the mourning practices of surrounding cultures was to cut themselves after the death of a loved one. Once again, we are prohibited from following in their practices. Rav Hirsch compares this practice with the, Jewish, with the Jewish custom to tear kriya, to tear a garment of clothing as a sign of mourning. He points out that there is an emotional need to express one's sadness at the passing of another and to symbolically show that the death has left a breach. Nonetheless, Torah forbids extreme signs of mourning, and especially those which hint that someone else's death has lowered the worth of our own life. He writes, a cut in our flesh would express the thought that with the death of a relation, our own bodily self has suffered a breach, and that is not to be. However dear and valuable, however important the existence of someone may be to us, our own importance and our own worth may never end with the end of his existence, may never be allowed to lessen. The life of every person has its own individual importance. Practically, the loss of one who is important to us must incite us to double energy to try and fill the gap in the service of God's work which the death has caused. Some have understood the prohibition against making a tattoo in the same manner, that it too was a sign of mourning, while others suggest that the practice was explicitly idolatrous. 
idolaters would carve the name of their god into their flesh. If so, it's obvious why such a practice would be prohibited. Sforno points out that we have our own ways of demonstrating our loyalty to Hashem. The sign of our covenant is the act of circumcision. That and that alone is mandated by Hashem. Verse 29 might similarly be considered chukot hagoyim. We are told, Don't profane your daughter to make her a prostitute, lest the land fall to prostitution and the land become full of wickedness. The verse warns that a parent must not desecrate the holiness of his daughter by selling her into prostitution. From context, several have suggested that the Torah is speaking mainly of cultic prostitution. As many idols were worshipped through sex rites, the Torah warns not only not to abandon your daughter for financial gain, but especially not to have her become part of an idolatrous sexual rite. Moving to the last two verses of our unit on Chukim. Verse 30 mentions two positive commands. Et shavtotai tishmaru umikdashi tirau ani Hashem. You shall observe my Shabbat and revere my sanctuary. I am God. It's not clear why Torah decides to mention these two commandments specifically here. It's possible that both come to counter the chukot that were prohibited in the previous verses. In contrast to a life of idolatrous practices, we are meant to live a life of kiddushah in worship of Hashem. Thus, the verse mandates observance of Shabbat, our weekly attestation of belief in God as creator, and we are further reminded to revere the Mikdash, Hashem's abode here on earth. In revering the Mikdash, we revere Hashem and the life of Kiddushah that the Mikdash represents, a life which stands in stark contrast to those of surrounding nations. Our unit ends with one last verse, which once again speaks explicitly of Chukot HaGoyim and idolatrous practices. Pasuk Lamed Aleph Al tifnu el ha'ovot ve'el ha'yidonim Al tivakshu litam'avahem Ani Hashem elokechem don't turn to those who are mediums, nor to the wizards. Don't seek them out to be defiled by them. I am Hashem, your God. This last verse warns against turning to necromancy in an effort to revive the dead and divine from them. As this prohibition is discussed again in chapter 20, we'll discuss it more at length there. But just to end with one small comment here. As with many verses of our chapter, this verse too ends, I am Hashem, your God. Rasi suggests that here, the ending serves as a contrast to the rest of the verse. Hashem says, don't turn to diviners, for I, not they, am your God. Know who you are replacing with whom. So to briefly summarize what we've looked at today, we've seen many different mitzvot, from the laws of Kilayim and Shatnes, prohibited mixtures, to the laws of Orla and Netaravai, not benefiting from a tree's fruit during its initial years, to a whole slew of directives aimed against the cultural or idolatrous practices of surrounding nations. The Rambam views almost every law in this section of the chapter as being a reaction to idolatry, while others emphasize, emphasize the opposite. How many of these laws are aimed at demonstrating our recognition of God as creator? Our next class will speak briefly about the last couple of laws of chapter 19, and then turn to focus on the opening of chapter 20, discussing both the nature of the Molech and magical practices such as divination and necromancy.